Our Father, all of the songs that we sing, indeed our whole life and existence as Christians, is bound up into your work in electing us to salvation in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you raised from the dead. Having conquered sin, death, and all of the demonic powers of the underworld, all brought into submission to this great kingdom glory of you, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are gathered here together as a part of the fruit of your work, a part of the fulfillment of the promise of God that all whom the Father has given to you will come to you, and all those who come to you, you will in no wise cast them out, but according to the will of the Father, raise us up also at the last day, and raise us up by your own power and glory to be conformed to your own resurrection body. It is with this great hope that we look forward to and live with anticipation of that great day. Help us to not be distracted with this world, but to be focused on those things which are true indeed, on reality, not as we see it with our eyes, but as we see it with our eyes as interpreted and clarified through your word. And indeed, we want to look at the things which are not seen and not only the things that are seen. So I pray, even as we look at this passage this morning in 1 Peter 3, which causes us to look up to this great resurrection glory of you and your sovereignty over all things, you who suffered on our behalf and rose on our behalf, who reigns for us and will return to receive us to yourself. Clarify these things in our hearts and our minds. Teach us, instruct us. For your everlasting glory, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Make your way back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Of course, last week we looked at the issue of the resurrection because it's Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday, but... Uh, this is a celebration of the resurrection as well. Every day in the life of a believer is a celebration, is an acknowledgement of the resurrection glory of Jesus Christ. Because he rose, we live. Because he rose, he received the promise from the Father and sent the Spirit, which was poured out on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit unites us to Christ, empowers us for ministry, produces holiness within us as we by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, causes us to have clear eyes to look forward to the hope of our glory and the return of Christ and the full experience of our salvation. All of that is bound up into the resurrection of Jesus Christ and so much more than that as well. And so we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every time we gather as God's people. And Peter is this morning going to point us to another aspect of this resurrection glory of Christ this morning. We'll look at the first part of it today and then we'll come back and finish it up again next week. But one thing that it reminds us of as well is that we as Christians live in a kind of paradox. We live in a, in a paradoxical reality. And there's many ways that that's worked out. One paradox is that the more humbled and broken we are by our own sin, the more joy we have as we repent and trust in Christ and know of his grace and forgiveness. One way that's a paradox is that though we suffer, we as 
to varying degrees, of course, but as whatever we would suffer for righteousness' sake, we have in that suffering a kind of joy, and a kind of joy that's deeper and better and more satisfying than all of the joys of unbelievers that they can gain from this world. That's paradoxical. There's paradoxes in our own culture that come because of the foolishness of sin. With the advent of supposed movements of liberation, such as the sexual revolution and feminism, it has produced not more happiness among our culture and in marriages and even among women themselves, but in fact, greater depression. With the advent of the iPhone, which was the savior of culture, to link us to one another, to open up to us whole worlds of possibility, and in some cases it does, it has in fact produced more depression and anxiety among teens and and even adults in our culture because of the negative influence that it has, social media in so many ways. Those things are paradoxical, but they're not so much to the Christian when we look at those things because we can see that they are against God's word and those who sow to the flesh reap from the flesh and God never designed for us to find joy in those things. But we as Christians find joy that extends or transcends our circumstances and we find joy even in our suffering. We find joy even in the hardships and the discipline of God. We find joy because we live in light of the resurrection of our Savior and all of the implications that that has. And that's what Peter is pointing these readers to of this epistle of First Peter. Those who would seem to or would seem reasonable would have rather the experience of depression or downcastedness. I don't know if that's a word, but We'll use it as a word, downcastedness. Because of the suffering that they were enduring, instead are those who, while doing what is right and yet receiving what is bad and wrong from their culture that they live in, like so many of God's people throughout the ages, yet have a hope that cannot be shaken. And in that hope, they have a joy. And that joy, again, is all centered on Christ. And the main idea is this. That as Christ suffered and entered into his glory, so his people suffer now, but with an eye to his present and coming glory in whom our salvation rests. And so we're going to look at just two parts of that this morning in 1 Peter 3. The first being the glory of Christ in bringing us to God. The glory of Christ in bringing us to God and the glory of Christ as the one who is victorious over his enemies. Let me read the passage and then we'll look at it more closely. So we'll begin in verse... 18, uh, and read all the way down to verse 22. For Christ died also for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subject to him. Now, obviously, in reading that passage and those who are familiar with that passage, there are many wonderful and mysterious truths that are contained there that have perplexed the minds of some of the great Christians throughout the history of the church. And we'll attempt to unpack those 
simply and clearly as best we can as we walk through it. But I want first us to look at this first point, the glory of Christ in bringing us to God, which is really the point that this passage is here, is not to bring us into mysteries or leave us confused, but rather to encourage a suffering people, to encourage a people who are experiencing circumstances that are threatening to them because of their faith in Christ. And so he points, as he always does, to the glory of Christ. And here in verse 18, the glory of Christ in bringing us to God. And so he begins, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. And here again he hearkens back with, to verse 21 of chapter 2 to call us to look again to Christ. To look again to Christ as the one who is the model and the example for his people, the one who is the savior of his people. Our entire life is bound up in Christ. And here, he causes us to look to Christ, the righteous one who suffered at the hands of the unrighteous, even as his people were, even as the church has throughout the ages, even as some of you may be in various ways in your family or in your workplace, who suffer at the hands of the unrighteous. So did Christ. And yet, he also suffered for the unrighteous. He suffered for the unrighteous. And that he suffered at the hands of the unrighteous for being righteous. Again, so he went before his people as an example. He just said in verse 17, If, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong, this is better according to the will of God. And it is indeed the experience of Christ himself. Christ himself. He is the one who suffered for sin. He is the one who suffered not for his own sin, but for the sins of us, his people. His suffering was atoning. He suffered to make us righteous. We suffer not to make anybody else righteous, but we suffer because we have been made righteous and we follow him who went before us. So he's making here a connection between the experience of Believers, the experience of the church and the experience of Christ himself. As I mentioned before and as we noted, everything in the life, in our life, is bound up in the life of Jesus Christ. Everything that is the experience of the church is bound to the experience of Jesus Christ, namely, not only in its receiving life from him, but the experience of suffering in this world, but also the experience of glory upon his return. We share in his own glory. Now, I noted that there's a connection here. This phrase is exactly the same as he used back in verse 21 of chapter 2. He says, you've been called for this very purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. And so there's a switch here. It's a different. While he's calling us here to look at the example of Christ and the model of Christ, back in 221, chapter 221, he was calling us to look at his example of suffering in the sense of that you endure suffering as he endured suffering. But here he points us in a different direction. And namely, it's this. He's pointing us to the example of Christ, not merely in his suffering that we must also undergo, but in his future glory that he attained through that suffering. He's pointing us not to his suffering in this present world, so much as looking at you, pointing us to the end of that suffering, which is namely his resurrection and his exaltation as the glorious Lord. 
He's pointing to us to his victorious accomplishment. His victorious accomplishment. For these who were facing not only suffering, but some facing death. And of course, hear this, well, of course, because we mentioned it before. The persecution was only as this first century would move on and come to an end and go in to the second century and beyond. Up into the third century, this was going to be suffering that only increased and many of them would die. There would be many martyrs for the faith as there already had been up to this point. And so he's assuring those who feel this threat from an evil world that Christ has overcome death and he reigns victorious over the forces of evil. He reminds us that as believers we will tread this same path here but with a confidence, an internal confidence from the Spirit of God that Christ has gone before us. And so the glory of this is not merely that he suffered to set an example to be a sympathetic high priest, but that the purpose and the fruit of his suffering was our reconciliation with God. Look at what he says. So that he might bring us to God. And that's, that's really the glory of this first point. That his suffering was that he might bring us to God. That in his suffering we are reconciled to God. We who were enemies are made children. We are made friends. And in reconciling us to God, we share in his victory. His victory over sin. His victory over death. His victory over the devil. His victory over sin and that he never succumbed to it. And he, his victory over death and that he defeated its consequence. Ultimate consequence is death. And his victory over the devil, defeating his purposes and crushing him on the head just as was promised. It's his victory. It's his glory. It's his glory as the risen king. And he establishes that this is for us. And these are the tenderness and of this promise, this declaration of Christ's work for us. Christ also died for sins once for all. It means then that it is completed. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, of course, never could make the worshiper pure in conscience and clean in conscience, never could finally rid them of the awareness of their sin. But Christ did once and for all through his death, which was an atoning death, which was a completed death, which was a final death to sin. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We who are aliens and strangers in this world are not aliens and strangers with God. We who are neglected and rejected and belittled and bemoaned and persecuted in this world are not out of favor with God, but in fact, in fact are those who have been brought near to him by the blood of Christ. And he's speaking here then of the elect. He's writing to those he already said in the opening of this letter who are chosen, who are the elect ones. The ones loved by God before the foundation of the world. The ones who were called and chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ who are called according to His eternal purpose and election in Christ. These are then, though suffering, though persecuted, though rejected by the world, are those who yet worship. And are maintained in this worship because of the grace and the mercy received in Christ. And so 
We are the called out ones. We are those who have received mercy. We who were born as rebels have been brought near to God. Is that a precious truth to you? Jesus reminds us consistently that the great end of his suffering, the great end of his accomplishment, was that he might bring us into this most intimate fellowship with himself. What do you feel when you hear these words of John 14 as he told his disciples on the night of his betrayal? He says, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Where I am, there you may be also. That's where we want to be, is near his side. He said in John 17 in his prayer to the Father, he says, I desire that they also whom you have given to me my elect ones, the chosen ones, that they be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given to me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christ is praying to the Father even there that his great delight and his great anticipation is that you and me and all of the saints that he redeemed would be with him in his resurrected glory to see his glory and to share in the Father's own love for him. First Thessalonians tells us that when Christ returns, we shall meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. He's come to reconcile us to God. He's come to bring us near into the most intimate fellowship with God. And that is why here at the first instance of this encouragement that we can rejoice or we can submit gladly to the sovereign plan of the Father in suffering for doing what is right because that is what Christ did on our behalf to bring us near to God, to bring us into the very intimacy and the fellowship of relationship and love for Him for which we suffer, for which we keep our excellent, our behavior excellent among the Gentiles for which we disregard our ignorance and former lust and we pursue holiness in the fear of God because he has brought us near to God. And so therefore we can endure these things because Christ has come and brought us near, we who were far off. And he's brought us near, not only in intimate fellowship, but as the one who is the king and the ruler He's brought us near to God. And verse 22 reminds us, he's brought us near to God. Here a reference to the Father at whose right hand he now sits, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. The one with whom we're in intimate fellowship is the one who is Lord over all. And that's the first encouragement is that he has brought us near to God. But how has he led us to God? How has he led us to God? Well, he tells us at the second part, and here's where it gets a little bit interesting. He says that he might bring us to God, how? Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Both of those two phrases tell us how has he brought us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, and he was made alive in the spirit. And that way, he has brought us near to God. He's brought us into this intimate fellowship. Having been put to death in the flesh... This is already established. He himself, he says in verse 24 of chapter 2, bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He was 
put to death on the cross once and for all, that he might remove from us the enmity of the law and the commandments that were against us and bring us into intimate fellowship with himself. He bore, was put to death by bearing the consequences of death, the weight of the Father's justice and anger in our place. He was put to death. He brought us to God in his death by removing from us the condemnation that our sin brings. But he was made alive in the Spirit. He was made alive in the Spirit. And again, as I said, this is where it gets a bit interesting. What does that mean to say he was made alive in the Spirit? Is it referring to the human spirit or is it referring to the Holy Spirit? Is it referring to some intermediate time between his death and his resurrection? Or is it referring to the time of his ascension? Or is it referring to the time immediately after his resurrection? When exactly was he made alive in the Spirit and what does that mean? If you have an NIV, actually, and I'll mention this later, but it'll say made alive or put the death in the flesh and then made alive by the Spirit. If you have a new King James, it'll say the same thing. And you have spirit that will be capitalized there. What exactly does he mean? Now some argue then that this phrase that I just mentioned should not be understood then in a parallel sense. The problem is, and you can't exactly see this here, and it doesn't matter so much, but they're exactly the same phrases. In other words, they're made alive, uh, put, made, uh, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, are exactly grammatically the same kind of phrase. And so they're, they're obviously meant to see as parallel statements. And so to make one mean one thing, like in the flesh, and the other is something else, by the spirit... Uh, would have been foreign to the readers of this letter. In other words, they should be saying in the same way, in the flesh and in the spirit. But what spirit is he talking about here then? If he's not talking here about the means of the resurrection by the spirit, but simply that he was made alive in spirit, the word the, by the way, is not there. It's just in flesh and in spirit. What exactly does he mean? And is he referring to the human spirit or the Holy Spirit here? I think it's best to see here that he's referring to Jesus' human spirit. Human spirit. Consider Jesus' words in Luke 23 while he was on the cross. At the end, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. In John 19, it records for us, John does, that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Now, some want to see there the Holy Spirit, that he gave up the Holy Spirit, or that he said, receive my spirit, that is the Spirit, Holy Spirit who was within him, but I would not take it that way. He was a man fully, in the full experience of humanity, And it was in that moment that he died and he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. However, because he was filled with the spirit, he had the spirit without measure and intimate union with the spirit, it's not completely wrong to see the spirit's involvement here, but that is not what he's emphasizing. But in what sense was he made alive? In what sense was he made alive and was this being made alive integral to our being brought near to God. And again, I would, say in, I would say in this sense, in the real experience of death, he not only suffered physical suffering, his death was not merely that his heartbeat stopped, 
that he lost a lot of blood, that his body physically no longer functioned in order to keep him alive. That certainly was integral to his work. It was a real death. It was a real burial, which was necessary for a real resurrection. But when Christ experienced death, he experienced it down and felt the weight of condemnation against sin in his very soul, in his spirit, we could say. The wages of sin is death, not only in its separation from God, but in, its, in terms of our physical body, the death that comes from that, or the separation of our body and spirit. But it also includes the separation from God and a taste of his displeasure against sin. How did he experience death? Physically, but also he experienced it in his words where he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was an experience of the consequence of sin there in the break in some mysterious way of the intimacy that Christ had with the Father, with the Father from all eternity. Because he gave himself as a guilt offering, as Isaiah 53 says, because he was made sin on our behalf, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, because he bore our sins in his body on the cross, as Peter said, he tasted the full experience of death. The displeasure of the Father against sin, not his own sin. He was the just, the righteous one. But the combined sin of the people, of his people, for every age. So then what way was he made alive in the Spirit? In this way. And that after suffering death and the weight of sin, he entered into the full experience of life as the Messiah who has completed his atoning work On the cross. He has accomplished his sin bearing mission. Which is his death. And he has entered into the first instance of what will be his resurrection life and glory as the Messiah. As the Messiah. He was made alive in the spirit. As he told the thief on the cross today you will be with me in paradise. And indeed, he was there briefly until the resurrection would happen. And 40 days later, his ascension to the Father in his resurrection body. And that is the emphasis of this passage is not on his death, but that he was made alive and that in his life, we have life. Our lives are intimately bound with the life of Christ. In his going back to the Father, we are brought to the Father. He has brought us to God in verse 18. In this way, he opened the way for us to be reconciled to God. In his return to the Father, he has brought us with him, in a sense, to the Father to share in this intimate fellowship, having accomplished our redemption. Now, some want to see this, as I mentioned, as happening after the resurrection. It's happening after the resurrection. And I won't get into those arguments. It's, one is because you might read that uh, if you were to read books on this passage. And that is one of the most common current and 
ways to take the passage that it is in fact made alive refers to his resurrection and it means after his resurrection that he went into the spiritual realm where he now reigns. But there is within that the unwillingness to realize that in the death of Christ there was actually a separation from who he was as the God-man, as man, and who he was as a man dead and whose spirit went to the Father. Who went to the Father. So there, the way that we would see this, or the way that those who want to see it as a resurrection would take it in this way, and this is, this is in the realm of possibility, but not the clearest way, which I hope will become clear as we go on, is that he was put to death in the flesh, and in other words, in the realm of the flesh, but now made alive in the Spirit, and lives in the realm of the Spirit as the resurrected Lord who rules over his people, not on earth, but from the right hand of the Father. From the right hand of the Father. But again, uh, this does not follow the sequence of the passage, nor does it account for the fact that there was a separation immediately after he gave up his spirit on the cross. So it seems best here in this passage to understand that this was Christ put to death in the flesh as a final offering to spirit in the spirit and made alive in the spirit to immediately enter into the glory of ex- as exalted Messiah returning to the Father victorious having completed his work. And that's where he points us next. So the first glory that's meant to encourage his people in suffering is that he has brought us to God. The second is this. The glory of Christ in proclaiming victory over his enemies. It says in verse 19 that being made alive in the spirit, he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who are these spirits in prison? They are those who were disobedient formerly when the patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. And so he immediately takes us from his death into his activity as the Messiah in his exalted and glorified state. And by the way, those who argue for that being a specific reference to the resurrection acknowledge that here he is talking about his activity in the spiritual realm without reference to the resurrection. Merely his glory in the spiritual realm. Now, there are a variety of interpretations and textual arguments for every word and phrase in this section here. But the overall point is simple, and it's this, that Christ is victorious over all of his enemies in death. That's the main point. And the encouragement to his people and to us is this, is that as Christ suffered but rose victorious and reigns over his enemies, so Christ reigns over our suffering, over our lives, and at the end of it, we will stand with him in his victorious and reigning and exalted glory. That's the point overall. However, that said, what precisely does he mean by the explanation? When did he make this proclamation? What did he proclaim? Why did he make the proclamation? What is the point of mentioning it here? Who are the spirits and how are we to understand that? 
The answers to these questions are legion and have perplexed many, so much so that it prompted Luther this passage to say in his commentary, I quote, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. He then said, I cannot understand and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. At least he was honest of how he felt. Luther never struggled with honesty. Maybe other things, but honesty was not one of them. He said what was on his mind. And in fact, while some positions can be rejected out of hand, it's also true that a reasonable case can be made for more than one position, too, in fact. And because of this, it's caused another to state when coming to this passage, and I quote, different answers to each of these questions can be found, resulting in a labyrinth of exegetical options, each of which has no clearly overwhelming claim to certainty, with one person calculating 180 different exegetical combinations in theory. I was reminded of that in studying this passage. That there were endless arguments and decisions to be made. Therefore, while a reasonable position is presented, it is difficult to be absolutely dogmatic. It's difficult to be absolutely dogmatic. And I doubt that in the few moments I have this morning, I'm going to cast away all doubt of church history and come to the definitive conclusion. But I will present what I think is the most clear and consistent meaning of this illustration with the text. So look, what was his activity? Being made alive in the Spirit, that work of bringing us to God, it says this, he in which he also went, some translation have in whom, that can be translated either way, but it depends on how you take Spirit. In which is the better translation, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Again, who are these spirits in prison? What is the prison and what is the proclamation he made and why did he make it? Now, there's four main interpretive lines throughout the history of the New Testament interpretation of this passage. Four main interpretations. Uh, There are some variances of these, but these are the general idea. Let me give them to you first. And this one comes from Augustine and kind of reigned for a long time in the history of the church. And, And many hold it even now. Augustine taught that it refers to the pre-incarnate Christ preaching through Noah by the Spirit of Christ to those who were disobedient during the building of the ark. So as Noah was a preacher of righteousness, he says it was actually Christ by the Spirit who was preaching to that generation who was disobedient. Evidence for that is drawn from verse 11 of chapter 1. When Peter says, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Speaking of the prophets. There is a Spirit of Christ within them that they were seeking to understand exactly what the prophecy, even they were proclaiming, meant in its fullness and in its completion. A second is this. says that it refers to Old Testament saints who were imprisoned but were declared free after the atoning death or resurrection of Christ. In other words, it's where Old Testament saints were held after the resurrection of Christ or his atoning death, entrance into the spiritual realm. He went and they were freed and they were released. A third offer, uh, interpretation is this, that it refers to imprisoned human spirits who were disobedient at the time of Noah but were given a second chance to repent. They were given a second chance to repent. A fourth is this, 
that it refers to Christ's proclamation of victory over rebellious, rebellious fallen angels who cohabitated with women and are now held bound in prison. So those are the main lines. Let me suggest this. The first, that it was Christ preaching through Noah by the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is not likely, though again it was held by Augustine and for many, and it is even today is held by many. It's not likely, however, for several reasons, not least of which is the fact that it says that he went to this place. It's a place that he went. It's the same verb, actually, that's used when it says in verse 22, having gone into heaven, same verb, same form, that he went, he went to this place, which is nonsensical if Christ were preaching through Noah, he didn't go anywhere. It was merely his spirit empowering Noah to preach the message. Also, it breaks the sequence of the passage. If we understand this to be a work of Christ subsequent to or after his atoning work. And so that's not very likely. The second, that he went to free the Old Testament saints, is eliminated by the fact that Old Testament saints are already with the Lord, as shown by the taking of Enoch and Elijah before they died, as well as the appearance of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And moreover, Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 3 that the sins of the Old Testament saints were forgiven based on the atonement of Christ's future, as ours are forgiven based on the atonement of Christ completed in the past. It says that in his that God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That would have been all of the sins of his people that he forgave before the coming of Christ. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so it's, it's certainly not to release Old Testament saints from some kind of holding cell in Sheol or the abyss or Hades where they have been held during this whole time. That doesn't make any sense. The third, that he went to give some a second opportunity to repent, is eliminated by the fact that it is appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. Man dies once and is then judged for his life here on this earth. That's Ecclesiastes. Remember that, in, that God in the days of your youth, your creator in the days of your youth, enjoy this life, but know that he will bring every act into judgment. Every act into judgment. It would go against all of scripture's warnings if there were a second opportunity to repent. And it would make nonsensical all of the unmitigated warnings of judgment and the urgency to repent now. Today is the day of salvation. So it can't be that. So the most likely then is the fourth meaning. Namely, that Christ, immediately after his death, possibly upon his resurrection, but immediately after his death, went to the place of judgment prison where the fallen angels of a pre-flood debauchery are now kept until the end. And what did he proclaim? He proclaimed victory. The victorious accomplishment of God over all the powers of Satan and demonic resistance. And just as a little footnote here, God's intention and desire and motivation to declare his glory and his saving work before the fallen and angelic realm is something that's consistent in Scripture. 
Not least of which in Ephesians chapter 3, where he says this, verse 10, that the glory of the church is so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places and according with his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. God is intimately concerned to declare his glory and his wisdom to those, even the fallen angelic realm who have rejected it and rebelled against him. So that's really the spirit here, is that Christ, having completed the work of atonement, having crushed Satan on the head, went to declare his victory to fallen angelic beings which would have included as well all of the unbelievers are there because Jesus reminds us in Matthew 25, 41 that all who reject Christ who have followed the way of Satan are in fact a part of Satan's judgment. Matthew 25, 41. So the first phrase then, these spirits that are in prison, let's make some observations. First of all is this. This plural noun, spirits, is always used in reference to angelic beings. There's only one exception in the New Testament. That's Hebrews 12, 23, when he talks about the spirit of those who have been made righteous. Or the spirits of the righteous, excuse me, made perfect. In other words, in a place where it's qualified. Here, it is just spirits. And two, the term prison is used in connection with fallen angels only in Revelation 27. Now, prison is common. It's the word where Paul was thrown into prison, etc. It's that same word. But when referring to prison in a spiritual realm outside of this earth, it refers only to a place of judgment for fallen angelic beings. For example, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, it says this. That when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And this prison was earlier described in verse 1 as the place where he was thrown, namely the abyss. The abyss. The prison and the abyss are the same place. This abyss that it says in verse 3 that was shut and sealed over him. Shut and sealed over him. So that he would be prevented from deceiving the nations. It is a place of judgment. It is the place where the demons begged Christ not to send them. In Luke 8.31, do not send us or cast us into the abyss, they said. It's the place out of which demonic forces rise. And demons are released in Revelation 9 to wreck torment on the rebellious earth in the time of the tribulation. So this is a place, this prison is not an earthly prison. It is a prison for spiritual beings, namely fallen angels. And here they are specifically described as those who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So it's not merely fallen angels, but it is a select or specific group of fallen angels, namely fallen angels whose sin was active during the pre-flood time while Noah built the ark, before God destroyed the world. Now this then is a direct link to Genesis chapter 6. To Genesis chapter 6. Let me turn there for just a moment. 
you're familiar with this passage, Genesis 6 brings us into God's destruction of the world, the episode of his flooding the whole world, save eight. Noah, or Noah, his wife, his children and their wives. Now it came about when men began, Genesis 6, 1 says, to multiply on the face of the land, then daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now you think 1 Peter 3 has engendered a lot of interpretations. So is Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Now why there is, of course, then debate on the precise meaning of this passage It is the common understanding, even throughout the history of the Jews, the way the Jews have understood this, that these were angelic beings who sinned and were judged by God. One of the most striking references to this Jewish thinking on this passage is found in the apocryphal book, actually, of 1 Enoch, which Peter, not only in his first, but also in his second epistle, shows familiarity with and alludes to. Now, there are many places, but let me give you the most direct. Out of the book of 1 Enoch, which says this, And I saw a pit with heavenly fire on its pillars. He later says, And on top of that pit, I saw a place with the heavenly firmament above it and earthly foundation under, no earthly foundation under it or water. It was, he says later, a desolate place. And again later, this place is the prison house of angels. They are detained there forever. Now clearly Enoch is not an inspired book, but it does here reflect the thinking of the Jewish mind on this passage and is possibly reflected as at least in that part of being something consistent with the reality. Namely, these angelic beings being judged and kept in some kind of prison by God. Now, who are these then? The main question is, who are these sons of God? Who are these sons of God that are mentioned in verse 2 and in verse 4? Well, throughout the history of the church, they've been identified either as angels, which of course was the Jewish interpretation, as rulers of the ancient world, or as descendants of Seth, Sethites sometimes they're called. However, this phrase, sons of God, should be understood as angelic beings, angelic beings. This exact phrase is used extensively or exclusively of angelic beings. It's not used a lot of times. But when it is used, it's used of angelic beings. Now, Israel is called God's son. There is the generation of sons referred to as the godly ones in the Psalms. But this exact phrase, this precise phrase, is used only of angelic beings. In Job 1, the sons of God twice are said to come and report themselves with Satan to God. In Job 38, it was the sons of God who rejoiced the glory of creation as they watched it come into existence which shows us that God created the angelic world before he created and molded the physical world. Also, this precise phrase, sons of God, would make little sense contrasted with daughters of men. If they were human, then it should be the sons of men. 
This is not how the Old Testament refers to men who are born of natural generation. So it seems that any interpretation that takes these as human fails to make the most sense of the passage. So they're not Sephites, they're not ancient rulers. And it's clear from all of Scripture that angelic beings are able to inhabit human bodies. There were angels who visited Abraham. We see instances like that throughout the Old Testament. Even the writer of Hebrews says that some entertain angels without knowing it. And here, however, in whatever way that they did this, they are angels who somehow inhabited human bodies for the evil purpose of sexual sin. Now, why did they do this? And it's going to be important to understand. Why did they do this, uh, What Peter's point? One possibility or part of it is that they simply desired the pleasure of sexual experience. Now, Jesus said clearly in the Gospels that angels neither marry or are giving, given in marriage, which means that angels do not have sexual relations. One, there's no female angels. Angels are always spoken of as males, of a male gender. It simply means that they don't have sexual relations, they weren't designed for that, and nor do they procreate. But this is not the argument of Genesis 6, which says that these fallen angels with corrupted natures, with fallen desires, with evil intentions, desired some kind of illicit sexual experience with human females. And another possibility, or part of it, is that they sought to yield a uniquely corrupting influence on humanity. So whatever action they took was consistent with all of Satan's activity, which is to corrupt humanity starting in Genesis 3 and all the way to the end. He who deceives the nations, who seeks to work corruption among God's image bearers. And here there is an association of this activity with what are defined as the Nephilim, which one Old Testament scholar, uh, C.F. Keel, notes that refers to tyrants. It comes from the root to mean fall upon, and these are then described as those who fell upon the people and oppressed them. So Nephilim, we need to note, are evil human rulers. They are not some race, some unique race of half-demon, half-human people, which is somehow how it's talked about. And why that idea of sons of God as angels is rejected because of the the inconsistency of being able to understand this is some kind of half-demon, half-human kind of people who exercised a unique power on the earth. But he makes clear that these Nephilim were on the earth already and they were on the earth after the flood. They're mentioned in Numbers 13, 33, for example. And there, though, he says in response to the Nephilim, those spies came back and said that we were like grasshoppers in the sight, does not mean this was some supernatural race of giants. That's an imp- Something that somebody can infer, but uh, only with great speculation. So these are merely human rulers. They are merely those who exercise great authority on the earth. And the, other, the judgment associated with this act is not specifically on the sons of God. Notice this. And the idea of their corrupting influence was their intention. The judgment that God brought was not on these sons of God who did that, or these angelic beings, at least as it's mentioned here, but his judgment is on humanity. Notice that when men begin to multiply on the face of earth, he's referring to the realm of humanity, and then he says in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
So the connection with the demonic activity is not to talk about some supernatural race that existed for a period of time on the earth. It is to emphasize the moral and spiritual corruption of humanity at the time before the fall. That has a direct relation to these supernatural, demonic association of demons with here men, and particularly the daughters of men. So it, it was marking the deep, deep spiritual corruption of this time and the deep wickedness of even these angelic beings. Now this interpretation is strengthened in the New Testament. And let me just mention this. In Second Peter, actually he's going to say this. In Second Peter chapter 2, talking about the false teachers who would come in, those who were corrupting the gospel, who were taking advantage of God's people. He says in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, in other words, the idea of prison, some place of judgment, some place of supernatural darkness, awaiting a time of final judgment, and did not spare the ancient world. So he's clearly talking here about angelic beings who were active during the time of Noah. But preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought upon the flood, uh, the flood a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And this, all of this in verse 10 shows that spiritual rebellion of corrupt desires and those who despise authority. This is the same thing in Jude. He mentions it again in Jude chapter, excuse me, verse 6. He says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And again, he connects this to the rejection of authority in verse 8, immorality, gross immorality in verse 7. There seemed to be a confirmation here clearly that these are angelic beings who had a particular intensity to their fallenness and their, to their corruption that caused them to exceed their bounds as angelic beings and to infiltrate humanity in such a way that it brought the most severe judgment of God. And they are now kept under that judgment until the time of God's final Judgment, And the purpose then, in Genesis 6, was to wield a uniquely corrupting influence on humanity. The connection that Peter makes is those who were particularly seeking to yield a corrupting influence on the church of God. And so here, Christ is shown to be victorious over them. And he goes and he makes proclamation to them. He makes proclamation to them. So what is the point over all of this? And we're going to pick it up there when we leave and come back next time and finish this up. But it's namely this. That though, that though there is seemingly this power of the evil one's over God's people, though God's people 
are persecuted and suffer for the sake of righteousness, that suffering is never the final word. Christ is Lord. That's his point. Whatever advantage evil seems to hold, it is under the sovereign rule of Christ and the Father. It's only temporary and all of evil and all of Satan's purposes will be destroyed. That's the idea. The proclamation of victory. It's like that wonderful line that we sing, this is my father's world. The last goes like this. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven will be one. God has the last word. His purposes will be accomplished. And secondly, it reminds us of this. And lastly, It reminds us that our sin and our failure and our weakness and our trials and our suffering are not the final word. Our salvation has been won by the sinless Savior, the just who died for the unjust. And then it reminds us then that our sin having been atoned for, Christ has brought us to God, He has reconciled us, and He has given us then an inheritance, as He said earlier, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us, where Christ is at the right hand of God, and who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. As Paul said in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No power of hell can keep him from building his church. No scheme of Satan can ultimately take us from his hand. We belong to the king. And that is his encouragement. And it's the encouragement then to press on in perseverance through trials. To press on though we battle with sin. To press on in hope of our salvation to press on as Paul said toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and press on because Christ has overcome because he is victorious and because we stand on the side of the true king of kings and the lord of lords now we'll leave it there this morning and pick that up next week And understand what he means by its connection with baptism. Let me pray. And then, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great victory that you have won on our behalf. And Christ, that you won on our behalf. Never succumbing temptation, you were the sinless one. Overcoming the grave, overcoming the consequences of sin by bearing its condemnation in your flesh. Defeating the devil and every enemy of God which is subject to you that you might bring us to God, that we would be a people who forever and ever sing the praises of your glory. May we be a people who do that here and increase in that as we wait that great day to do it with all of the holy angels and the redeemed of all time and sing the praises of you who purchased us from every tribe and nation and tongue. To that end, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.